Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Cons Minds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 104, we have very special guest, Anthony Hennon. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Glad to have you. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Li- a little a little slighted. I was not the guest for uh, episode one hundred, but we'll let that slide. <laughs> yeah, we saved that for uh, we read Bill Buckley's book, God and Man at Yale. Unbelievable. Seemed, seemed uh, yeah. I mean, he he gets first booking, but uh, Anthony, you, you you and I have worked together at uh, at Philly Weekly uh, in the when it was Philadelphia's uh, best and only alt weekly. Um, that that brief and beautiful shining light of a moment then it got uh bought by liberals and we went our separate ways so uh but it's good to good to have you on here so um basically let's just let's just start off with about you um where'd you grow up um what was your upbringing like and how did you how did you get interested in in politics as a, as a business yeah let's see uh well i grew up uh right on the border of ohio and west virginia uh down in the southeast um you know my hometown was about 500 people the biggest near city was you know 25 30,000 um so fairly you know fairly uh rural upbringing um I've, I've bounced around a good bit since then but i've been in philadelphia now for almost three years um but no, I mean, it was nice. It was good. Um, let's see, where to begin with that? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, that kind of almost uh, idyllic uh, rural upbringing, whereas, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of as kids, you know, we, uh, a lot of social life centered on school or church. Um, you know, our parents just kind of let us run around. Um, not that much to do in high school, aside from, uh, you know, watch movies, play mini golf, light a bonfire, uh, you know, the, the various mm-hmm. shenanigans here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Southeast Ohio and, um, went to college there down at Ohio university. Um, didn't really leave until I was 24. Um, I had a brief, uh, summer internships down in North Carolina, um, and also Washington DC. Uh, but otherwise I didn't leave until uh, almost my mid twenties. And then I ended up over in uh, central Europe for a bit, um, lived in the Czech Republic a couple of times, uh, once for a few months, the second time for a year doing a master's degree. Um, ended up in Washington, D.C., down in North Carolina again, then uh, came up to Philadelphia. Um, as far as my interest in politics and that sort of thing, uh, I sort of fell into it. Um, I was always interested you know, in English classes, social studies, history, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ohio University had a fairly well-regarded um, journalism school, so that seemed to be the, uh, the obvious next step. So I went into that. Um, Got, got involved with um, Students for Liberty on campus and running around with a bunch of weird and uh, awkward libertarians, myself included. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Most of them are, yeah. Yeah, right. Gosh, so many, <laughs> so many stories from that. Uh, but yeah, I just kind of kept bouncing back and forth between uh, journalism and public policy. Uh, started traveling around more with Central and Eastern Europe. Um, really got into, I mean, literature and that sort of thing. As far as, you know, books and thinkers, um, in college, I, I read a good bit of, you know, F.A. Hayek, um, some Rothbard, 
um, you know, those kind of typical um, kind of libertarian right-leaning thinkers. But I mean, since then, most of my reading hasn't really been so focused on economics or political philosophy. Um, a lot more of it has just been you know, literature, novels, classics, um, some history here and there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of been the, the driving force behind me, not so much this very narrow focus on politics or anything, but kind of this broader, I guess, um, look at society and culture and history and trying to pull some, some lessons from that, or I guess, kind of understand Western civilization, American culture, uh, that sort of vein. Yeah, it all, it all does kind of run together, doesn't it? I mean, I started out really more narrowly focused on history and politics. And I, I mean, I remember in college saying that I wouldn't take a sociology course because they talk about cringy libertarian ideas. I, I thought society <laughs> wasn't real. So, <laughs> now half of what Corey and I read are sociology books, it seems. So it's, you know, it all, you realize it does all kind of get back together. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I, I think every kind of like right-leaning uh, type kind of goes through that sociology sucks phase where I was the same way until I read um, Robert Nisbet or um, I, Joseph Bottom is another thinker who's been mm-hmm. really highlighting the importance of sociology and kind of that approach. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's weird how those, uh, those things pop up uh, in some weird pattern. So Anthony, were you conservative to start out? I mean, when you went into college, did you know I, I, you were going to be conservative? You were going to join the libertarian club or what's your evolution? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I basically started in, I, I came in through Henry David Thoreau and kind of reading um, Civil Disobedience and Walden. Um, so, you know, I, I had a very brief socialist phase for a couple months, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my parents are um, conservatives. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I basically went more by the end of high school as already libertarian. Um, you know, I, I guess now I prefer the term classical liberal, but at this point, I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Um, no matter what label I go with, someone's going to you know, lie about what I actually think. So you just kind of embrace it after a certain point. Yeah, that's true. And, and with everything <clears throat> sort of changing up these days, it's hard to tell, you know, as we parties are still kind of in flux. I mean, what what is a conservative? I mean, that's kind of what this whole podcast is about, too. Mm-hmm. And we, we also read this bit back in the first season with the uh, quest for community. Mm-hmm. It just seems like that is... Uh, that drives a lot of it too. And that's something I, I felt like conservatives used to ignore that sort of thing as we lean too heavy on the libertarian side of, of the, of the fusionist uh, triangle, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a mix. Um, I mean, you know, you can go back and, and read all this other theory um, where, you know, there's still a fairly strong indication in libertarianism or classical liberalism or whatever catchphrase we're using or avoiding these days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's still this strong emphasis on society, on these voluntary institutions, on you know the uh, the under, underpinnings of a society or these kind of civic institutions. Um, but I, I think one one of the curses here is one of the few veins where you see a lot of movement among classical liberals or success is in economics. Um, so just by virtue of you know, there's more Milton Friedman types or F. A. Hayek types actually getting in these uh, influential positions, um, you know, that sort of straight economic analysis, cost benefit stuff is going to rain out as opposed to, you know, if there were more libertarian sociologists or more um, conservative sociologists, I, th- I think we would have seen uh, some level of course correction there. But yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it, it's much easier to measure economic growth or anything else rather than the health of a, of a society and no one really reads the classics or this deep history anymore. So 
I, I think that's, if nothing else, the uh, path of least resistance. So you said you had a socialist phase. Was that in high school? And what did that look like? Oh, that is, is honestly such a blip. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was early, like sophomore high school, where it's kind of this instinctive, you know, everyone deserves some basic, uh, basic minimal level of comfort or survival. Um, so why not grant that? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I was, I was 15, so I, I don't think it was, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think my socialist thought was very deep at the time, nor my uh, path out of there either. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't count when you're 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had no great, uh, um, you know, Whitaker Chambers moment of <laughs> being in the communist party, then escaping and having the pumpkin tapes. So no, cause it sounds, it sounds nice when you're young. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone be nice to each other and share stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, Let's, everything yeah. I mean, sounds yeah, nice are- when you're young. <laughs> Doesn't it though? I mean, my daughter asked me today what nostalgia means. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a loaded, that's a loaded question. <laughs> you have, you have a very jaded daughter already. Kyle. <laughs> yeah. So in your, uh, in your day job, you're a reporter at the center square. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like? As it begun, I read your stuff a lot because we reposted a lot on uh, broad and Liberty. So yeah. How, you- how, how's it been? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm always glad to hear that Broad and Liberty is picking up on my uh, my insightful and uh, beautiful oh. prose. Always oh, good yeah. to see that. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's, it's it's been good. Uh, I mean, the Center Square is is kind of interesting on the level of uh, I, I I think one of the bigger problems here among any you know sort of right leaning media or publications, um, it's a lot of opinion. It's a lot of editorializing. It's a lot of you know reactionary outrage about whatever the current thing is. Um, or is the center square is taking a different approach where, you know, it's, it's coming from a taxpayer perspective. It's much more focused on state policy, on how states are spending taxpayer money, doing all this stuff. Um, but it's fairly, it's fairly down the middle. Um, you know, they, uh, they, they avoid, um, editorializing. Um, they're much more trying to come in, find these issues that matter to people and basically inform the public on it. Um, so I'm, I'm writing, you know, I'm writing a couple articles a day, um, fairly short, almost, uh, AP style, or I guess what used to be AP styles. There's kind of an asterisk there now. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, just kind of, uh, watching the Pennsylvania general assembly, kind of what, uh, what bills are coming up. Um, and the center square does this. I think we have full-time reporters in 35 States at this point, and then another, um, eight or nine States with stringers. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a national operation trying to cover, state policy, what state houses are up to, um, how this is affecting people either in their paycheck, economically, um, the direction the state is heading, and, you know, trying to make sure that these local papers have some sort of uh, some sort of place where they can republish coverage, you know, that's not, you know, draining them and kind of mm. helping run them into the ground. Uh, but I mean, it's it's been good. It's been interesting. Um, I, I've been interviewing a lot more state politicians than I used to, uh, and kind of figuring out when a politician is saying something interesting and when they're, they have a uh, canned phrase loaded and trying to get the, their agenda out there rather than educate the public. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's given me a better sense of uh, Pennsylvania, um, its political history and where it's at as a state. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's only been, it's been two, three months. I started at uh, the end of February. It's the end of May now. So it's, it's a new thing. Uh, it's fast paced, but it's good. That's pretty awesome, and obviously, we're in an era where local news is struggling around the country, and I feel like it's even worse for—I don't want to call it conservative news—but I do think that 
reporters, there's a distinct uh, shift in even local news coverage where, where they see the clicks mm-hmm. and the clicks are not typically, I guess, from, from conservative readers. I don't know if that's true around the country, but it's been my experience in a couple of states that I've lived in for a long time. I don't know. Do you have any reflections on that or have you had some success? I yes. guess. Yes. I, I have a couple of things. I actually wrote um, for national review um, on this topic six, eight months ago, maybe. Um, yeah. I, I think there's two things here. Um, one is, you know, you look back, I think it was 2012 or so um, when a previous iteration of Tucker Carlson uh, gave a speech at CPAC and made the uh, made that argument that the, the right needs its equivalent of the New York Times. Um, I think that was kind of one of the early um, attempts when he started up the Daily Caller of trying to hire a bunch of right leaning or at least not uh, blatantly partisan um, journalists to report news, to do investigations, to dig into what the government is doing, what's happening in a city or state or society, uh, and give a view that's not necessarily dominated by, um, you know, liberalism, progressivism, whatever bugboo you want to refer to. Um, which I, I think is a great, um, a great goal for a journalistic project. Um, the problem is that is uh, very different from what. Tucker Carlson now does or what a lot of people want. Um, the, the most successful right-leaning outlets, um, you know, there, there's some exceptions to this. There's still a lot of good, um, you know, right-leaning or conservative partisan media that's doing, um, doing solid journalistic work, but a lot of it is much more op-eds, editorializing, punditry sort of stuff. Um, which is a shame because that's one of the biggest areas where, uh, the right fails and actually, giving young journalists a chance to learn the craft and develop skills. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that, that that's a, that's a lingering problem and a lingering criticism I have of a lot of conservative outlets. Uh, but then on the other side of this, um, you know, this is a problem in general for local news for at this point, even state news, um, even national news in some instances where that, you know, that there's this long critique of, um, you know, these, uh, large uh, venture capital firms or um, corporate firms coming in, buying up local papers or state papers, and then basically just cutting, you know, firing staff, cutting the paper down to nothing and Mm -hmm. losing that um, important uh, journalistic work on the the ground. I mean, now you kind of have that bifurcation of you either have these national journalists based in New York, DC, LA, or San Francisco, something like that. Um, and you don't really have that many uh, local journalists, or if you do, you know they're in their early twenties, they're underpaid. Um, the the mid career journalists are basically gone because you can't afford to raise a family on forty five k a year or less in many instances. Um, I, I think that's a problem with a lot of these big um, corporate firms coming in and basically cutting down uh, the assets of a paper and selling it for scraps or bleeding it dry. But I think this is more, and this is why I wrote. Um, for National Review about, um, this is much more of a civics problem. Um, on the one hand, yeah, you know, the uh, local news is not producing at the same uh, quality or um, range that it was in the 90s or even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you don't have people valuing that sort of news or work anymore. You don't have people subscribing to the papers. I think mm-hmm. the median the median subscription uh, uh, subscription age is uh 
what in, I think the fifties, mid fifties or something like that. So, you, mm. I mean, you don't have younger boomers, you don't have uh, gen X, you don't have millennials actually paying for any of this news. Um, partially, I, I do think it's because we've been spoiled and entitled by the internet, uh, providing so much news for free. Um, but also, you know, the complete collapse of advertising as a source of revenue for papers has been um, disastrous for local news. Um and it's hard to, I, I think it's really hard to build that back, to build back this sense of, even if you're not reading the newspaper every day, or even if you don't have a job where needing to know the news is that relevant, the lack of people actually subscribing to these local papers make these local papers more ineffective. Um, papers have their own uh, uh, their own level of fault in this and not being able to go out and pitch people enough to... Um, make them believe that it's worth their money to actually subscribe to these papers, maybe not catering to what people are most concerned about. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a, a number of factors coming together and that's really undercutting um, quality journalism across the country. And uh, I, I think it does come back to this idea of people are simply not as engaged with where they live as they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, yeah. It seems like a, it seems like the same problem that happens in a lot of industries. You get a brain drain to, to New York, to Silicon Valley, you know, it, all of the people who might've been a star at the, the Baltimore sun or Miami Herald. Now they, they get the offer from the times and say, well, I got to go, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, it like, but that's every other business it seems in America too, is that you get, yeah. that, you get that drain. And I, yeah, we I mean, we've, we've talked about that a few times on this podcast. Like, what do you, what do you do about that? And it's, I don't know what, I don't know if there's any answer. It's certainly not any easy answer. Um, but that, I think that's one of the things conservatism is wrestling with these days. And Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, you see all the, these kind of big conservative donors wasting, you know, eight, 10, 20, 50 million a pop on these pointless um, election campaigns or, you know, money just flowing into the pockets of consultants and other um shady people with titles like GOP strategists or whatever else. Um, Mm -hmm. It'd be great if they, you know, just burned $20 million of funding journalism. Um, Clearly this is a very self-interested argument um, from me, (laughs) but you know, if, if nothing else there, I think there is a, uh, there's a civics angle on here. You know, uh, you have a lot of donors complaining about higher ed and whether we should just start our own institutions um, or at least stop funding uh, universities that hate their alumni. Um, you know, I, I think if nothing else, you know, throw, uh, throw some local media, some money or, you know, sponsor, uh, sponsor some aspiring journalists. So they're getting a, get an extra paycheck or, you know, something here to, uh, to build out because I, I think these, uh, these issues, you know, just the, I, I guess it, it, the ideal is find some cranky old, um, guy who has a bone to pick with some county government or state government. So he just finds a bunch of 20 somethings and pays them all 40, 50 K a year just to harass government uh, offices and get the goods. Um, Those uh, record requests. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, one of the, one of the problems here is the, you know, you, you have a shortage of journalists or mid-career journalists, um, but you also outside of the Washington post, the New York times, um, some larger regional papers, uh, a lot of these places can't afford to let someone work on a story for four, five, six months. Um, you know, freelancers can kind of do this in their spare time. But again, if you're trying to uh, make a career, make money off freelancing, you can't spend six, eight, ten months on a story 
trying to interview a bunch of people and send out all these public records requests. Um, it's just that there's a money issue here. There's mm-hmm. a, you know, there's a financial issue. There's a civic um, engagement issue. There's a lot going on. And uh, it, it's extremely hard to find someone to long time horizon to support these important investigations. Uh, I, I think if nothing else, uh, you know, if I were a wealthy old dude in the Republican Party, I would get very few things would give me more joy than hiring some young people to go out and report and get some bureaucrats fired. Yeah. Uh, but that's just me. You know, I, I see that as a legitimate strike against, uh, you know, big government or government overreach, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, gonzo journalism, but for conservatives, um, that would be mm-hmm. ideal. But we are in a, we, we're in a culture right now. We're in a p- different political battles where that is not a popular stance because it's much easier to pay, some weird dude to go on a college campus with a camera and ask weird gotcha questions to clearly uncomfortable undergrads on uh, the uh, college green. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I wonder if we could get your thoughts on why you think that there isn't a conservative New York Times. I mean, I guess there kind of is with uh, the Wall Street Journal. And I think, I mean, I read that every day and I think that's pretty solid. But it does strike me that, you know, the New York Times which has always been liberal has now become, you know, super woke and so forth. But like still three years later, two years later, you know, two thirds of the, of the headlines on the front page are, are Trump related, which mm-hmm. tells you everything you need to know about who's, what people are clicking on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I, and I wonder if that's what you think there hasn't been a conservative, uh, a more robust, like conservative news outlets, uh, as opposed to just, uh, commentary, editorializing, um, conservative talk radio, so forth. Is mm-hmm. it because the conservatives are just not clicking on it? Is that what you think? Or I, I don't want to put you on the spot. Yeah, but no, I, no. This is something fine. that I've just really wondered about for a while. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things here. Um, one is that even as the New York Times becomes you know more woke, progressive, whatever you want to call it, um, they're still producing some of the best journalism in the country because they are doing these long-term investigations. They are breaking these big stories. They're still doing journalism, going out, reading, reading through these documents, interviewing people, trying to get to the root. Um, I, I, I think also places like the Washington Post and the New York Times are in uh, the catbird seat because they have enough of a natural platform. They have enough of a base where you know they can juggle a few things at once. Um, I, I think some of this that there is no conservative version of the New York times uh, is that some, I think some of it's just interest. A lot of, you know, conservatives with the money or with the influence simply don't care that much about journalism. Um, You know, they might be more interested in trying to uh, fund more, you know, right-leaning scholars and get get them through higher ed. Um, They might think, you know, our approach to this is, gaining control of the state house or the presidency or whatever else. So they sink these, this money um, into campaigns and more political uh, things. I, I think some of it is just, um, you know, a self-selection issue of the capable types of, you know, right-leaning people who would be good journalists are going into other fields. So it's kind of hard to get that, um, uh, that base. And I, I think it's also in a certain way, the uh, success in the last half century of these small conservative publications from National Review, um, you know, the Weekly Standard for a while, um, all, all these different outlets, um, 
the that approach of kind of um partisan news or news with perspective or whatever else which i think still can create a lot of value for a number of reasons um i think that model has been good enough of building out carving out some space for right-leaning um journalists and writers that they're uh, happy with it and you do get i mean you do get a bunch of different uh conservative style journalists going into either now the Washington Examiner, which does a lot of um, mm-hmm. solid journalistic work, um, or when you saw the the Weekly Standard go under, a lot of those guys, um, you know, at least a few of them went on to jobs at CNN or some of these uh, mainstream publications. Uh, so I, I think there is kind of that pipeline where right-leaning types who want to do serious journalism or journalism that's not just op-ed and editorializing, um, if they're doing g- good work, they can get noticed enough to get into these larger state papers or national publications and, uh, you know, either keep their head down and do the work they want to do or carve out a niche as, you know, the, uh, the token right-leaning type or whatever else. Uh, so, you know, I, I think some of it is just a lack of interest. Some of it is that energy gets steered to other um, places, but also, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, all these other papers they're they're doing enough and they're making enough money from it where they they can they can have their cake and eat it too they can do fantastic journalism work and they can also do that kind of pandering to the uh, partisan base and just you know orange man bad blah 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 Mm. protect democracy don't question how we define democracy (laughs) yeah and they do they do really good news work and i mean I, I I watch their website when election results are coming in because it's the nicest maps. They they really they have the money to do it right and it looks great. But I, yeah. I I think you're right that with the Examiner and other places like that, maybe maybe there's a groundswell of places where you can be uh, openly conservative and just do news. Mm-hmm. I, I that, think that would be nice. I, I think it's also you know twenty thirty years ago people would still call CNN the communist news network and you know, all these cranky conservatives who just have to mm-hmm. complain. Or, you know, Rush Limbaugh talk radio guys just had to create some sort of nonsense. Um, so, you know, after a certain point, if you keep calling them communists or if whenever you don't see something uh, or whenever you see something you don't like, you're going to call them socialists and blah, blah, blah. At some point, they're going to write you off and they're not going to pay attention to uh, your critiques anymore. Yeah, that's true. So let's uh, let's change gears, maybe take a sort of a more 30,000 foot view. Uh, a lot of what we do on this podcast is figure out what conservatism means, uh, where it's going, where it's been, that sort of thing. So what what do you think is, what would you call American conservatism here in 2022? What, it, what, it like, uh, what does it look like to you and, and how is it changing? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, um, partially because uh, I, I think I'm out of the loop here. So I'm, I, have a, uh, I have a blinkered view of this, if nothing else. Um, you know, I, I think there, there's a few strains, right? There's still that, um, call it folk libertarianism or kind of, um, natural reactionary small government conservatism where, uh, you know, people's views haven't changed that much over the last five or 10 years. Um, you know, that, that type of conservative conservative who, um, you know, was not, initially supported going into Iraq or whatever, but then got disillusioned with it. Um, still kind of upset about immigration. You know, I'm, I'm much more of a, a pro-immigration open borders type than the median conservative, especially the median Republican voter. Um, but I think there's, you know, that instinctive um, non-political conservative type that's still generally like a 
fairly libertarian leaning person where they just want to be left alone. They want taxes to be fairly low. They want competent government. Um, I, I think with Trump in the last five years, a lot of people have overestimated um, th- that type disappearing. It's all, oh, you know, there's been a definite change, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I think that's much more true in these weird conservative circles in D.C. or New York or mm-hmm. where, what have you. Um, there's definitely been a rise in this sort of like populist or nativist um, instinct driven by Trump. Um, but Trump has also kind of shown the limitations of that. I mean, you see him endorsing candidates and blah, blah, blah. Um, but a lot of the candidates he's endorsing, um, you know, you look at you look at Pennsylvania. He didn't endorse um, Doug Mastriano, uh who won the Republican nomination for governor. Um, he didn't endorse Mastriano until Mastriano had a solid 15 point lead over um, second place. I believe right. I mean, he, he was late to the game on that. And it's it, the, uh, this vision of GOP as a party of Trump, as Trump being a kingmaker that people just listen to. Uh, I, I think that's overblown by Trump. And I think that's also overblown by people who really hate Trump um, because it just makes it more convenient to, point of the oh, you know half the country's white supremacists blah 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 um so you know th- that that's that trumpist strand is there but i don't think it's terribly long-lasting um i think you have in these really weird egghead conservative circles um th- this rise of of illiberalism of kind of looking toward uh hungary and misunderstanding what's happening in hungary as um the way forward of uh, kind of this this catholic integralism which i think everyone overblows i i don't think this is very influential um but there is kind of this evolution among some conservatives of you know the the time for neutrality has passed now it's time to you know really fight the culture war um you know embrace cancel culture to get what we want this more um yeah i don't know this instinctive way of you know principles are less important when our backs are against the wall Mm -hmm. I, i guess that's kind of michael anton's flight 93 essay um approach where apocalypse is around the corner if we don't act now um yeah, I don't know. It's 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 also I, I think hard to gauge just because you know I'm I, I'm working more. I'm not just wasting my time in weird libertarian <laughs> circles. Um, I, I I think there is that kind of um, default libertarian turn is definitely out of favor. But I'm not sure if that's permanent or if this is just a cyclical thing. Um, I, I I think we'll see this long run kind of uh, approach of wanting a more activist government for conservative ends. Um, I think we'll see that run for a bit, but then I'm thinking the pendulum will probably swing back to a more classical liberal approach here, um, pro- probably farther away from that kind of uh, Ronald Reagan-esque light libertarianism. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, these things come and go in cycles. We've seen this with um, tariffs throughout the decades. We've seen this of, we've seen this kind of um, laissez-faire approach come and go. We've seen, you know, um, activists for an interventionism versus um, non-interventionism come and go. So I don't know. It's it's hard to see. I I, I think it's uh, the uh, the broad national talks about this can get, come here and there and end up in weird circles or elevate people who have like thirty people behind them while ignoring like the normal um, conservative base that just has a job and is sick of paying thirty percent of taxes when the government can't uh, fix up potholes down the road from their house. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you say that because it it does seem to me that almost the, almost the opposite is the case in terms of like where, where the libertarians are. I think 
you know, when it comes to libertarians and we'll say neoconservatives who have been, let's say, the thought leaders of uh, on the Republican side for a long time, it seems like so many of them have have turned to the the never Trump and definitely moving in a different direction, like Weekly Standard closed down, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems more to me like, and you know, I work in D.C. It, it seems to me that those folks are still around. A lot of them are never Trump. A lot of them are trying to decide where they go from here. Quite a few of them uh, voted for Biden. And out in the country, it seems more like there's a, a movement much more towards, we could call it populism or working class, uh, a Republican Party, working class coalition sort of mm-hmm. thing. But uh, do you think that's right or, or do you think I'm off? Uh, again, I think it's hard to say just because the U.S. is so vast. Um, you know, I, I think this varies heavily by region. Um, and just, you know, the, the circles you're running in. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely there. I mean, I was never a fan of Trump. Um, I, I, I think the, the biggest thing here when we're reflecting on Trump is when you actually look at his long-term effects, um, the rhetoric has definitely shifted. But when you look at his legislative accomplishments or anything else, um, it's pretty weak tea, even... I think by the standards of people who are very pro-Trump, I don't think he really moved the needle much. Um, in some way, I think that's a Pyrrhic victory where, yeah, you got elected, but when you actually look at, you know, how much he shrank the government or, you know, clean the swamp or whatever else, I don't think that really happened. Um, I, I think this is also, when you look at voting patterns or anything else, I mean, you're still, people who are registered Republican are going to vote registered Republican same as people who are registered as Democrats are going to vote for Democrats 90% of the time. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I, I think, yeah, the, your point about the libertarians and never Trump are still being around D.C., um, I think that's very true. I, I think it's also true that libertarians have an outsized, outsized uh, influence in D.C. and in those public policy circles. Um, so I, I, I think in some ways... Um, last five, four or five years have had some longer lasting effects when you look at um, things like family policy and thinking of, you know, family tax credits and ways to kind of help people on that level. Um, I I think the rhetoric around China has definitely shifted. And I think people are just realizing how absolutely evil a lot of things are that that are happening in China, um, either from everything in uh, Xinjiang or um, seeing how they crushed Hong Kong. Um, I, I think even without Trump, I think we would have had a bit of a shift there, but with him there and the weird ways he would pronounce the word China, I think that really put a spotlight on it and kind of, um, push the issue. Yeah. I think, I think you're right about the policy effects. Cause it was, I mean, it was, uh, a lot of the, that presidency was all vibes, you know, but, <laughs> but some of it, I just mean, some of those vibes are still resonating. Like yeah. you said, like China, I mean, I think I think the trade question, he didn't do anything through Congress, which I felt I'm of the three of us on this podcast, I'm probably the only one who wants more tariffs. And I was kind of disappointed that it was all executive order nonsense that can be repealed at any time. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, in that way. But also we're seeing we're seeing some of those long term effects now. I mean, people talk about the judges, but the judges are about to matter in a big way in in ways that's going to reshape a lot of things whenever mm-hmm. Dobbs comes down assuming it is what it is I mean that's that's a pretty massive effect so it's I don't know maybe maybe the lack of the lack of impact in policy I wonder 
because we're kind of seeing a lack of impact in policy with Biden too. And it's, I wonder how much of it is just Congress not doing anything anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a big thing. I think it's funny too with um, like I, I think Gorsuch is generally great, um, but I think also uh, you know and, and anyone who leans a bit more classical liberal, I, I think Gorsuch has been a very strong um, justice on most. There's been a couple of things where it's kind of iffy, but I, mm-hmm. he's I, I think he's interesting. I mean, it is worth noting that the legislative victories were, I mean, tax reform. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that's a very libertarian, economic, conservative win. That's not what you would think of Trump doing when mm-hmm. he gets in office. The regulatory side, that not a lot of that was legislative, but definitely through through executive order. Yeah, but the, I, I the think judges, even, I mean, are kind of traditional, like re- Republican establishment type stuff. Yeah, I, I think with, uh, you know, with Kavanaugh and um, Amy Co- Coney Barrett, uh, you know, that that seems more, almost more of a win for social conservatives rather than any sort of new Trump wing. Um, but I also think just the uh, I, the the tax cuts too. I, I think that was kind of more of that kind of traditional um, business Republican, um, much more of a focus on you know upper middle class more than anything else. But I, I think uh, I, I think the big issue here is the complete um, almost uh, deferral of Congress from actually doing their jobs and creating law to either looking toward the executive branch to issue executive orders or the judicial branch to tell them um, what can and can't be done. I, I think that's a big part of kind of this national um, incoherence where, you know, if Congress isn't making the law and the president's issuing executive orders that can be changed the day after an election, um, as far as the long-term effects go, the only avenue there is now is the legislature. Um, and I think that makes things harder to do on a few levels, but I think it also just undercuts social trust in um, the judicial branch. And I think it also makes it much harder for, uh, for any sort of compromise to be found because, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to have different laws in California versus Ohio versus North Carolina. Um, But when the Supreme court has has to um, weigh in, then things become a lot more contentious and Congress is, apparently just uh, satisfied with sitting back and pontificating about how the Supreme Court can't do this, this, and this. Like, well, yeah, they shouldn't have to. But when mm-hmm. Congress isn't fixing in these issues, it's no surprise that people are going to expect uh, the SCOTUS to take care of things. It's a shame. It is. And I mean, we've got, uh, we've got big elections coming up and, you know, people are going to, people are going to vote, but I don't, I don't, I wonder if they actually expect congress to do anything because it just it seems like it's been getting worse every year with that sort of thing you see they're on twitter more and more rather than uh, doing anything else yeah you see them before like you see a congressman going from the cameras like when are we going to have change on this it's like dude you're in the majority (laughs) (laughs) write a bill (laughs) i don't know it's a it's a mess but i guess as we as we close um is there any any uh, what do you any big issues you're watching or any interesting things you're reading lately that you want to just pass on to us? Uh, I, this might be a bit off topic, but I, I've been uh, I mean I I just I've been reading more um, Washington Irving and kind of going back and uh, working on an article about how Irving is America's first travel writer. Um, I, I think it's interesting you go back to that those uh, early American writers and the things mm-hmm. they're hitting on. Um, you still you find a lot of. Uh, Things not things that aren't necessarily strictly political, but these kind of cultural tensions or social um, tensions 
that are still have been there since basically uh, people started seeing themselves as Americans and writing as Americans. Um, so I, I think it's always a big, uh, a big thing. I think we'd be better off if more, uh, more Americans or at least more people engaged in ideas or politics um, moved away from policy papers, from reading op-eds um, to all these kind of current events books, diving into more of you know the American tradition of letters and literature and kind of seeing, seeing how people thought about these issues 50, 100, 200 years ago and how they conceived of the United States and where it was going. Um, so highly recommend Washington Irving. Uh, always dig into that. And of course, my uh, all the brilliant insights I'm throwing out my essays on him. Uh, oh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, John Dos Passos was another writer uh, I've been digging into. And he's he's kind of the uh, I, I see him as kind of the uh, leader of an American modernist style that um, we did not follow. Uh, Ernest Hemingway dominated, sadly, rather than Dos Passos. Um, but Dos Passos was interesting because he. Uh, his approach he included i mean he would he would write straight prose he would work in monologues he would work in newspaper headlines um poetry all this different stuff kind of trying to get uh grab a snapshot of american culture and uh what people thought was important i think is interesting going back into that and seeing you know what uh what early 20th century um american literature and american writing was like so i highly recommend doing that and uh also just want to plug uh, the center square. And if you're interested in, in, uh, in uh, state level politics and what's happening um, policy wise, please pull us up and uh, check us out. Yeah, absolutely do that. Uh, Anthony's work is always good. Uh, as I said, that's why we uh, republish it on broad and Liberty all the time when we need some solid news. That's right. So uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. All right. And uh, that's, Anthony Hennon, episode 104. Catch us next time.